Good morrow there, YouTubers. How are you doing? This is Chris Snowden coming at you from Shore and by Sea in the Swift Half with Snowden, the fortnightly half hour chat show. Hope you're doing well. We've been rather hot and sticky in uh, Britain recently, but things seem to be cooling down. Thanks for joining us again. You know the drill if you're a regular viewer, like and subscribe, like and subscribe. Uh, it's a half hour chat with somebody of interest, uh, to certainly to me and hopefully also to you. And this week it is the great Clyde Bates. He is the director of Counterfactual. He's a former director of Action on Smoke and Health. He's worked at Greenpeace, just the kind of guy we like at the, at the IEA, um, but has some very sound and robust views, particularly on vaping. And that's really what I want to talk about mainly today. Clive, how's it going? It's going well. Um, greetings from Nigeria, where I am at the moment, enjoying the cool rainy season, uh, in contrast to the sweltering uh, climate of Britain. It's actually quite pleasant here. Yes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased it is somewhere. Um, on the vaping side, Clive, well, firstly, I have to say, I, I find the whole thing incredibly dispiriting, and I'm used to being on the kind of losing side in these lifestyle wars, um, mm. and I'm used to people... Yeah you know, making things up, exaggerating and what have you. What I find particularly dispiriting with the e-cigarette thing is I honestly thought we'd be in a better place. You know, 10 years ago when I started vaping, I thought we'd be in a much better place now than, than we are. And in terms of regulation around the world, overall, it's, it's gone backwards. Um, in terms of public perception, which is the most scary thing, um, things have gone backwards. And this is really part of a deliberate attempt by people in public health now i get it when they do it with alcohol and smoking and what have you because you know there are obviously genuine health risks associated with, with those things when you're dealing with vaping it's not like i'm just on the side of liberty on this one i'm actually on the side of public health for once and yet yeah. the people in public health are trying to stop it i mean you talk about these issues probably even more than i do do you just get do you get very disheartened and sick of it or not uh, it, it is incredibly disheartening um you know i mean i'm uh, not really, I'm kind of a, not really a libertarian. I'm in this for public health reasons. Um, I know, uh, you know, my, I have a in family history here. My dad died because of smoking-related disease, and I'm pretty sure if he'd been a vapor for a few, you know, a couple of decades or so before he died, he'd still be with us now. Um, I, I find it absolutely incredible. The, the, the mission... You know, and I was the director of Ash, and I'm proud of that. I'm not, I'm not resiling from any of that. The mission we had was to deal with the incredible burden of cancer, COPD, heart disease, and everything. People dying early and living in misery. And that mission seems to have just been quietly forgotten in favour of a kind of incredibly hostile reflex reaction to innovation in this field, and it's pro-health innovation as well. It's not just an, you know, it's not just a better kind of cigarette. It's basically taking the harm out of the use of uh, out of the use of nicotine, and it's morphed into a, a kind of war against drugs mindset, and possibly, and I hate to say this, but a war of survival for the people who've made their careers and livings and reputation in this field, battling their nemesis, the tobacco industry, which is engaging in some kind of major reform of its business model. Everything is upside down and back to front at the moment. Everything is wrong about the situation we find it ourselves in. And yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I can see, you know, I follow your, your work a lot, Chris, you know, and I can see your arguments on alcohol 
gambling, whatever. But this is qualitatively different. This isn't about the freedom to harm yourself. This is about an actual strategy and innovation and technology that takes the harm out of doing something um, fairly innocuous, which is using nicotine. So, yeah, I'm very dispirited. I mean, well, I don't know where to start, really. I've got a list of basically places and <laughs> organisations to discuss. The UK with the CAR review right. recently, the European yeah. Union, the FDA, WHO, everything seems to be looking worse. Ireland, I think, are now talking about banning flavours. Um, let's start with the UK, because you, you've written about the, the CAR review. So I'll just explain for people at home. There's supposed to be a white paper out on tobacco control sometime this year. The leadership contest has thrown everything up in the air. But um, there is something meant to be coming out from the government. The government commissioned a guy who used to run Bernardo's for some reason to do an independent review of tobacco control. And Clive, what did he come up with? Well, he, he, he basically came up with UK tobacco control orthodoxy and lukewarm support for vaping as a kind of pimped up NRT for use in nicotine replacement therapy, for use in, um, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of smoking cessation kind of way. Um, I mean, on the upside, it's like much better than anything else by any kind of official uh, inquiry anywhere else in the world, including in particular the United States, the World Health Organization, or the European Commission. But on the other hand, you'd have expected a little bit more ambition than he actually came up with. So on the one hand, he was very unambitious with vaping and harm reduction, which I believe is the, the key. If you really want to eliminate smoking, you're not going to do it by force. You're going to do it by creative destruction, by the, the process of one innovation taking over an incumbent product on the basis of its advantages not because you're just sort of pressing people with restrictions and punishing them with taxes and stigmatizing them to change their behavior. They're going to do it voluntarily. Otherwise, you'll have black markets and workarounds and all the rest of it. That's what he missed. That's what he didn't do. And then on the other side, he just rehearsed, you know, more of the standard tobacco control playbook of punitive, coercive, stigmatizing, restrictive measures which, you know, they have a place up to a point, but there comes a point where you break the contract with the citizen if you're just, as the state, you're just being too aversive, you're being too punitive, too coercive, and so on. Now, we probably disagree about where those limits are, um, but nevertheless, he, you know, pushed even harder on those levers. So, for example calling for a 30% increase in prices or taxes, it's unclear which, um, in the time of a cost of living crisis, calling for, you know, a 30% increase if you're on universal credit, that's unbelievably punitive. Uh, and it just seemed to be completely insensitive uh, to that. Call for more money to be spent at a time when it's pretty obvious we've got very tough fiscal and public spending circumstances and a lot of legitimate calls on the budget um, and, you know, not a very strong tax base. Call for more, more support for smoking cessation services without ever really going into why the use of those services has fallen by more than 
over the last few years. Now, I would have expected a piece of quality policy analysis to go into what the reason was for the falling up. Was it everybody going to vape shops instead? Was it that they just cut the funding? Was it they turned them into well-being centres rather than specialised, um, you know, quit smoking clinics? Nothing in there, just a call for spending 70 million a year. And that's the bad habit with it, this. Just like, I don't mind spending money, but it has to be done cost-effectively with the sense not just that there's a problem to spend money on, but if you do spend it, you'll actually get a result that is worth the money that you're taking out of the public purse. So there's a lot of that in it. And there's some mad things like this um, uh, smoke-free generation uh, uh, proposal where you raise the age at which you can purchase cigarettes or tobacco products one year every year. So that in, you know, in 10 years from now, you have to show, you have to prove that you're 28 and not 27 before you can buy cigarettes. Now, it's a ludicrous idea in practical terms. Um, you know, you will just get all kinds of black market trading through the ages and so on. But the main reason not to do it is it will fail the credibility to never get through Parliament. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna buy that one, particularly when you have a libertarian inclined government in charge isn't obviously not going to fly. So it'll create a lot of noise, but it won't ever achieve anything. So that's basically my take on it. Uh, a lot of wrongness in it. And then the things that it could have done to really push the market to deliver on vaping as a, an alternative to smoking, you know, allowing more advertising, allowing snooze onto the market, allowing advertising of heat not burn products, allowing uh, manufacturers to put cards uh, in cigarette packets, arguing for vaping, having an NHS insert in cigarette packets. There's a lot of stuff you could have done that would have changed the game on all of that, but you just didn't bother with any of it. Yeah, it's interesting that he titled the report Making Smoking Obsolete, but of course you make things obsolete when something else overtakes it. You don't make things obsolete by... Exactly. I mean, I had a section in my review on how you would actually make um, smoking obsolete. And I've withdrawn it in order to do a separate blog on that later. But you're absolutely right. I mean, things will be made obsolete by, not by bands. Um, you know, I mean, you could say vinyl records are obsolete um, in the sense that everybody's moved from digital music players, downloads, and now to streaming services. Doesn't mean anybody's everybody absolutely everybody has stopped using vinyl and everybody we've banned vinyl, but essentially it's functionally obsolete as the main method for delivering music. Now I think something like that will happen with nicotine. In the end, people will use these non-combustible products uh, to use nicotine, you know, uh, snooze pouches, heated tobacco, vaping products. Those sort of four broad platforms will be what people do. And they'll do it, not because they're made to do it, but because there are advantages to them in doing that, that they don't, they feel better. It doesn't cost them so much. Um, they live longer. They're not at risk of disease. They don't smell. They, they can eat in public places without offending people, blah, blah, blah. When you put all of those advantages together in a value proposition that rivals smoking, that's essentially what will cause people to shift and make the smoking proposition obsolete. It'll take time and there will always be people who want to smoke. You're never going to bully them out of that. Um, 
because in the end they'll access a black market if they don't want to shift. But the 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 obsolescence of smoking will happen because the alternative for using nicotine is better, not because it's forced on people. So I assume that painting cigarettes brown and putting individual health warnings on them was not something you considered when you were at Ash. I mean, did, <laughs> isn't isn't a cigarette painted brown just a mini cigar? Basically, I don't even see how that would be unattractive. That would look I, all right. I, I don't. I don't know what the thing. I, I really took exception to that proposal of putting individual warnings on cigarettes because it's not it's not about providing anybody with any additional information. I mean, you know, you'd have you'd have to live under a rock not to know that smoking was harmful, very harmful. I mean, most most smokers will know someone who is, uh, you know, of a, you know, middle-aged folks anyway, will know someone who has died in agony from cancer or COPD or something. It's not, it's not something that you need to convince people of anymore. The idea of that, that measure, putting warnings on individual cigarettes, is all about humiliating the user. It's all about basically making people, you know, essentially the government saying to you, look, you're an idiot, and I'm going to make you parade that in front of people by writing it on a cigarette. And that's that's what that's about, about stigma and humiliation. It's not about information awareness or encouraging people to do something that's better for themselves. Let's turn to the World Health Organization, um, because... It's a kind of organization people don't pay a lot of attention to in this country, probably pay a bit more attention to it in Nigeria, I don't know. But during COVID, that was probably the first time many people really paid much attention to the World Health Organization and noticed that they weren't necessarily up to the job. But we've been noticing this for some time with regards to, to vaping. What? How would you summarize the WHO's position on vaping and how have they got there? I mean, WHO is extremely hostile to vaping um, uh, and other safer forms of, of, of nicotine use to the point of advocating prohibition. Um, in one of the most ludicrous moves ever, it gave uh, a WHO top award to the health minister of India, citing his prohibition of vaping products even though India has 100 million smokers, um, 200 million users of traditional and quite dangerous smokeless products, um, and will have a, a, a kind of giant black market as a result. I mean, it, it, it couldn't be worse. And I think this comes from WHO's um, kind of attempt to kind of grandstand. The bureaucrats there just want to say things that are crowd-pleasing. And, you know, being ever tougher and more prohibitionist gets them applause from their stakeholder uh, clientele. But it's also driven by um, these stakeholders, you know, you know, and in particular the Bloomberg complex, Bloomberg Philanthropist, which funds um, organisations that campaign for vaping prohibition in low- and middle-income countries. You know, thinking of the union, campaign for tobacco-free kids, and they spend... They, they spend a fortune, they spent well over a billion dollars in poor, poorer countries campaigning on tobacco control, and now that is morphing into campaigning for prohibition of the safer forms of nicotine use, which is madness. Um, you know, they're, they're active in countries that cover percent of the, the world's smokers, and they are pushing an anti-harm reduction agenda which is indistinguishable from 
pushing a pro-harm agenda, in my opinion. And this has quite a bit of influence in places like Africa, I guess. It doesn't have so much influence in the UK, but some of the, the, the more developing countries where they, um, they need the WHO from time to time for different things. Yeah. I think, I think I mean, the biggest problem, I would say, is not so much in Africa, uh, where there's not particularly high rates of smoking in Africa. The biggest problem is in uh, Asia, and it's not so much that these countries need WHO's um, uh, authority or need, you know, or need, need WHO's advice. It's just that if you get a health minister that wants to kind of be a hero amongst other health ministers and to get applause from the Bloomberg uh, complex and he wants to, you know, cut a dash in the world of tobacco control then what they can do is draw on WHO for authority. So, so the way I see it is that WHO creates what you know, policy wants call an authorizing environment. They make it okay and acceptable to do these incredibly ridiculous things like vaping prohibition and actually reward health ministers for doing it. Um, and, and that's what that's where the big battles are being fought, really, is in you know Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, China, India, uh, Indonesia, where where there are you know just huge numbers of smokers, male smokers in particular. In Africa, I think that's only just really getting underway because the levels of smoking are much lower, the levels of smoking-related mortality are much lower, and frankly, African countries are more preoccupied with you know, malaria, TB, and other, other diseases at the moment and haven't yet reached the point where smoking-related diseases or in, the, in, or in the poorest areas in Africa, air quality from cooking on open fires indoors, which is, a, you know, a real blight. So smoking just jostles, not particularly prevalent, it just jostles amongst a wide range of other issues in Africa. But it's a massive issue in Asia. You mentioned Michael Bloomberg there, um, who has had an extraordinary influence. I mean, there's, I, I mentioned it at the start that Ireland are looking at banning e-cigarette flavours. This is now a very popular policy in a lot of places. I think the Netherlands are looking at it. A couple of countries in Europe already have. And, uh, America, via the FDA, are effectively banning flavours. Um, I'm not one for saying, you know, follow the money or, or, or you know, let's blame yeah. one person for this, because obviously it very quickly gets you down a bit of a rabbit hole. But with yeah. Mike Bloomberg, you know, there is quite a lot in that, isn't there? That there is really one guy driving a huge yeah. amount of this. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's Bloomberg and the people who influence Bloomberg, plus a great deal of money. Um, so in the United States, he's put up $160 million for advocacy to ban flavours, okay? Now, that sort of money is so large in advocacy terms. I mean, he's not, he's not building factories or anything with that. That is advocacy, legal action, and so on. Now, that's a gigantic sum for any kind of advocacy or lobbying operation. And, of course, he's, he's managed to capture huge numbers of health organizations like American Cancer Society, American Heart Foundation, American Lung, um, American Thoracic Society, um, the, and they have special purpose vehicles like vital strategies for doing promotional activity on this. So that has created a huge you know, uh, uh, kind of institutional platform for pushing this idea. Um, and you add to that all the academics that read the signals from the Food and Drug Administration and the money that it channels into research 
And they're all aligned then with finding a thousand reasons to, to ban flavors. So you get what I call a complex, and it's the academics, it's the journals, it's the advocacy organizations, it's the agencies like FDA, CDC, and they're all aligned with this idea that we can solve what they call a youth vaping epidemic, but it's nothing of the sort, by banning flavored e-cigarette products, which is ridiculous because these are flavored products. Is you know you're one step short of banning the pro the product outright if you ban flavors, and it's as near as they can get to a prohibition without actually having one. Um, and that that influence in the United States is so influential in this. That influence flows all around the world. You know, um, it creates, it sets so much money involved in the research community, in the advocacy community, and that advocacy extends internationally through Bloomberg spending and the Gates Foundation spending, and it creates this kind of consensus that youth vaping is a terrible thing, and we must do something about it. Something is banning flavors, let's do that. And that is basically what's happened in Ireland even though the chances are that banning flavors would increase smoking amongst adolescents, would increase smoking amongst adults, uh, would create a black market, would create workarounds like home production and you know people making and selling their own and so on. It just create the kind of mess that prohibitions always create with unintended consequences that the advocates of those prohibitions will never accept and never uh, you know, be accountable or responsible for. And I just want to mention heated tobacco because it often gets left out of the conversation, but yeah. it's quite an interesting one. So these are products like Glow and Icos, where the, yeah. the, the tobacco essentially smolders at a lower temperature than it would do if it was combusted. And it was a study that you brought to my attention actually this week um, oh, yeah. from a couple of researchers funded by Bloomberg, as it happens, indirectly, I think, or maybe directly. Um, and they set out to show that the effectively the vapor, the emissions from heated tobacco are actually smoke. Yeah. And why is why why do they bother doing that? Clive? Why does it matter to them whether it's defined as smoke or not? Let's just say it, it, it is not open minded curiosity in, in pursuit of knowledge. Um, uh, that is not what is happening there. The, re the reason that they want to uh, classify the emissions from ICOS products as smoke, and they are not smoke, there is no legitimate argument for calling them smoke, but let's say they want to do that. The reason is they want them to be classified as smoking products by the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, um, which is the WHO International Treaty. And then if they're classified as smoking products, all you, it's a simple leap then to say that all the, all the regulatory measures and fiscal measures that you apply to cigarettes, you should also apply to these products, which essentially would make them unviable uh, as competitors to cigarettes. Now, why they want to do that, I don't know. Um, it's probably because these products are only made by tobacco companies and they are tobacco products. Um, and... For them, that is, uh, that's the red line. If it's tobacco and tobacco industry, um, we're, not, we're against it. Whereas actually what they should be against is combustion products and smoke from a public health point of view, because that's the thing that does all, all the harm. But they've allowed themselves to get into this position where they are fighting the industry and fighting tobacco 
more than they are fighting for public health. And that, that's why they're ending up doing this sort of thing. It's an incredible mistake, in my opinion. It's nothing to do with science or legitimate inquiry into what the public health implications of these things are. It's a pure political play to get these things ruled out because they are anti-tobacco and anti-tobacco industry rather than pro-public health. And now if we could, in this little world tour, skip to America, which in yeah. some ways is the most frustrating country of all. I mean, there are, there are worse countries like Australia where they banned uh, e-cigarettes outright, but uh, America is, I think it's fair to say, where most of the junk science comes from, most of the scare stories come from, and where you have the FDA with this unbelievably bureaucratic labyrinthine system, which seems to nearly always result in them banning the product. So the FDA has the authority to take products off the market. It has taken tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many off the market. I hear very, very large numbers. What is going on with the FDA? What are they playing at? So, so at the heart of the problem, Chris, is that the US law establishes an authorization regime rather than a notification regime and standards. So EU more or less has a notification regime and a set of standards. They're mad standards, but they everybody knows what they are. And if you comply with them, boom, you're on the market. You have to fill in a database, send off some paperwork, and bang, you're on the market. Um, and then if any if anything goes wrong, you know, it's just like a normal product recall type sort of process. In the US, every single product and every single component of the product has to be authorized through a process called pre-market tobacco applications. And the <laughs> The problem is the labyrinthine complexity of what you need to do to put what is, by every consensus, a much safer product than uh, a cigarette on the market is astonishing. Not only is the complexity astonishing, but also it's opaque and appears to change all the time without anybody being informed that the rules, what the rules are or that the rules have changed. Um, so what we're seeing is FDA setting ever higher barriers to getting e-cigarette vaping products on the market that the, the manufacturers of these products can't meet, partly because the barriers are so high, and secondly, because they don't know what the barriers are. They, they don't find out until their products have been rejected. And that's led to a string of court cases, uh, including most recently Juul. Uh, which was the, the product, an, an exceptionally good product that just tore through the cigarette market in from you know about 2017 to 2020 um, until there was a sort of recoil against it and everybody blamed it for what they then called the youth vaping epidemic. FDA has always been hostile. Congress has always been hostile. Even though that company produced a superb product that really caused a massive decline in smoking amongst adults and actually amongst youth in, in the United States. FDA just denied all of its products a couple of weeks or a few weeks ago, um, said, no, you can't put any of those marks. They all have to come off, made up some phony scientific stuff about, you know, genotoxicity and leachate and everything, which under examination fell apart in about five minutes. FDA then had to pull itself back from court because it was going to get uh, the, you know, it was, it was likely to get a very stern rebuke from, from the court. And now it's gone into some internal FDA review and administrative procedure. But that's not the problem. The problem is just this 
incredible barrier to entry that FDA creates for, by all accounts, massively safer products. And yet, there are 3,000 cigarette products on the US market, largely untroubled by FDA intervention, burdens, demands, few reporting requirements, but really not very much. So it's a massively asymmetric regulation and this approval process doesn't apply to cigarettes because none of them would ever pass it. They're all just weighed through, whereas they've created an incredibly demanding gate for access to the market for e-cigarettes. It couldn't be worse. It couldn't be worse, and I'm afraid our time is up, Clive. Thank you very much. You won't get more information about e-cigarettes around the world in half an hour than I think you've just had in this episode of The Swift Half. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you very much if you donate to the IEA. If you'd like to give us some money, go to iea.org.uk slash donate or go to patreon.com slash IEA London. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, don't forget to check the archive. We've done quite a few of these now. So go back. The last one was Eamon Butler. He's always... Good value. I did one with Julian Jessup talking about inflation a while ago. If you go back in the archives, you can see me and Kate Andrews predicting the inflation. I've probably been a bit too optimistic of anything. Um, there's Constantine Kissin talking about the Ukraine war. Very interesting stuff. And, of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan early on, seven-time world champion. Um, I'll be back, as I say, in a couple of weeks. Take care of yourselves. Thank you and goodbye.